Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 23rd, 2012. Not limping in this week. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things out there. And we do the comparative work. Now, it's with that in mind, it's one of the things that I'm seeing as a recurring theme in some of the emails that I've been receiving from people is questions about where can I go to get a basic understanding of how to rightly handle the scriptures. Uh, you know, this is basically, you know, what resources are available on the topic of things like hermeneutics or exegesis and things like that. And so uh, what I did today at the Letter of Mark blog, L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S. Yeah, it's not dot com, it's dot U-S. Letter of Mark dot U-S. I uh, posted a uh, a post that is an amalgamation of of resources, uh, well, an amalgamation of thoughts and rules from like several different sources, and uh, at the end of it, I also included a, uh, a a further reading list, not very long, but um, if if somebody were to ask me where should I, you know, what what could I read that will help me understand the biblical text? Where can I go that you know? What book would you recommend? Um, the book I would recommend, hands down, is not one you can get at Amazon. It's not one that you could uh, walk into your local Christian bookstore and get. In fact, you couldn't go to a book signing because this guy's dead. <laughs> but uh, you can find it. it. It's the number one uh, item listed in the in the further reading list. It's a book entitled The Principles of Biblical Interpretation by the late Raymond F. Serberg and uh, from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, in this, I'm telling you, there is just nothing fancy about this text, but it will give you a rubric. It'll give you a framework 
for understanding how to understand the scriptures. And uh, it's like 20 bucks from the uh, Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne bookstore. And I provided a link for it at the letterofmark.us blog. But uh, this uh, post that I put together is kind of an amalgamation of stuff that's uh, found in Serberg, um, as well as a few other sources. So um, yeah, let me just put it this way. Um, it, it is many people really approach the Bible wrongly. Uh, they think that because it deals with things spiritual that it's to be understood well differently than you would read anything else. And nothing could be further from the truth. You know, words mean things. And so what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to spend time kind of working through biblical problems. And what I mean by that is people mishandling the biblical text, and then we're going to end with somebody who skillfully handles the Bible. So what we're going to do in first hour today, we're going to start off with a, I'm going to be reading a couple of stories uh, as it pertains to these Islamic-friendly Bibles that uh, uh, World Magazine has written about. And uh, we're going to take a look at that. Uh, Gene Veith has uh, uh, kindly furthered along this information, and, and I wanted to talk about it a while ago, but I needed to confirm a few things because this whole idea of, you know, Chrislam, it's, it's a, it's, that's a miserable way of putting it. But, um, I, in fact, I received an email from Pastor Charmley reminding me that it's not Christians who are promoting Chrislam. Uh, Pastor Charmley uh, he sent me just a real short email yesterday, and he said these aren't Christians that are promoting this idea of Chrislam or this this you know this these this new unity with uh, Christianity and Islam vis-a-vis maybe like uh, Tony Jones of the Emergent Church or Miroslav Volf, one of his uh, mentors. He, he pointed out that uh, these folks are Christians in the same way that liberals are Christians, or at least not Christians, the way J. Gresham Masham describes them in his book, Liberalism and Christianity. It's a completely different religion. They're not Christians that are doing this. These are people who have hijacked the the word Christian, poured into it their own meanings and their own theology, their own doctrines, and they they come to the biblical text with certain rules set up to block what God's word clearly says and so, you know, Pastor Charlie's right. They're not Christians. But uh, we're going to be taking a look at, at at this to kind of just put our toe in the water to start off today's topic in the first hour. And uh, then we're going to change uh, gears. And uh, if you haven't been uh, watching the news uh, regarding Jimmy Carter's latest book, Jimmy Carter, uh, former United States president um, and uh, Southern Baptist, uh, I don't know if he's Southern Baptist anymore, but Baptist, uh, you know, he separated from the Southern Baptist a while ago. But uh, he he's a he's was a Baptist Sunday school teacher and things like that. He's got a new Bible study book out, and he recently did an interview with the Huffington Post, and uh, it's worth passing along for this reason. He is literally a, a walking poster boy for the for the liberal misuse of of scripture and it and it and it just shows how unskillful he is in handling God's word and so we're going to take a look at that we're going to review then the the basic rules for biblical interpretation and I'm going to use a controversial topic in evangelicalism uh it, that's going to be the topic of baptism and in fact I'm going to be playing audio from a video from potential church, a potential church uh, th- during their Easter, 
services or thereabouts, they're going to be having eye baptisms. That's right. They're, if you if you register, they'll send you a free T-shirt, a, a, a bracelet, and instructions basically on how to baptize yourself. Um, you, you need to invite friends and stuff. I mean, this will all be internet-based baptisms, and <laughs> they want you to photograph, take a photograph of the baptism, so that they could post the eye baptisms on their website. No kidding. And so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, t take the, the basic rules for rightly understanding the Bible and apply them to the doctrine and teaching of baptism. So you, you, you kind of you know, will do something controversial there because I, evangelicals, I'm sorry, they just do not have a right understanding of what the scriptures teach on the, to on the topic of baptism. So uh, I'll be tackling that. And then we're going to switch gears. They're kind of staying in the same vein, uh, but uh, we're going to do a, an, an emergent church update and uh, listen to audio from an interview with Doug Paget and John Shelby Spong discussing uh, Spong's latest book regarding um, something about recapturing the Bible for the non-religious, something to that effect. And then uh, once we're finished with that, in hour number two, we're going to be listening to two fantastic sermons by uh, uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Is he a doctor yet? Is he? I know he's working on his doctorate, so I, I don't think we can call him Dr. Jeremy Rohde yet, but... Uh, Man, I'm looking forward to being able to say that. He's uh, he's my former pastor, or one of my former pastors, at uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be listening to two recent uh, sermons by him, one entitled the uh, Our Serpent of Salvation, where he's basically taking John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and you're thinking, wait a second, isn't, that, isn't the John 3, 16 passage in that? Yes, it is. And the name of the sermon is Our Serpent of Salvation, and he he nails the greater context of this passage and cross-references it you know, as he should, as Jesus himself did with the Old Testament story from Numbers chapter 21. So we'll take a look at that, and then he'll be doing another sermon from an Old Testament text, Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, on the altar of incense. So... If you're thinking, you know, Chris, it sounds like your theme for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith has something to do with sound hermeneutics. <laughs> yeah, you'd be right. Uh, you know, a lot of times I don't normally discuss the theme, but I, I make a point of pointing out that every edition of Fighting for the Faith, except for those ones where I say I don't have a theme, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of leftover stuff that I put together kind of in a stinking pot potpourri kind of way. Uh, those ones don't have a theme, uh, but uh, I, really each and every edition of Fighting for the Faith has an underlying theme that I'm trying to work in so you know, so that it's, I don't know if that's inductive. The idea here is that you learn theological categories by learning the content of, of those categories and how they work, not necessarily by name. So, and the, the, hopefully the goal is is that uh, you'll you'll start to feel like ah okay I'm starting to get a grasp on how to how these theological categories work, and you kind of intuitively begin to understand them, and that'll drive you to maybe even want to study further. So that's the idea. All right, so with that, we are going to uh, dive into the program proper, and uh, that requires me to play our news music. From Gene Edward Veith's blog, entitled Cronach, the Blog of Veith, you can find this at geneveith.com, the uh, headline reads, Islamic Friendly Bibles? Yeah, Gene Veith writes, he says, Many missionary groups in Islamic countries are using Bible translations that avoid offending Muslim sensibilities and getting rid of 
phrases such as the Son of God and God the Father. And all of this is in the name of church growth. And yet, Christians in these countries, beleaguered as they are, are strenuously objecting to these translations. Mindy Bells of World Magazine reports, quote, A team of translators with Frontiers, that's the name of the uh, translator company, I guess, or the mission society, helped produce the disputed translation of Matthew in Turkish. And SIL said some of its consultants helped at certain points in the process. Sabil Media, a partner organization of SIL, published the translation in August 2011, printing it in book form and posting it online. In the Turkish Matthew, the alternative form for Son of God is something along the lines of representative of God, according to Turkish speakers, and God the Father has become the great protector. A footnote explains that the alternate alternate terms, according to the Jews, God's Son means God's beloved ruler and is equivalent to the title Messiah. Now, you're thinking, what on earth are they talking about? Let me just run it down for you. Um, this this group, this organization, is coming up with brand new translations of the Bible that uh, that are specifically geared to not offend somebody who's a Muslim. Uh, it's as if, okay, you know, okay, you don't like the term "son of God" because, well, according to the Quran, Allah has no son. Well, we understand that. No problem. We'll just muddy up the translation a little bit and you know and take out the word son of god so that you know uh, you don't have to be offended by that have you noticed any problem here okay you okay so what's going on here is a backwards approach to scripture and that's really kind of at the root of it in fact let me read a little bit more the translators emphasize their desire to promote evangelism. So all of this is being done in the name of evangelism, okay? So we're we're going to we're going to we're going to get rid of the offending pieces of the scriptures and kind of blur the meaning here and get rid of that and and shade this off all in the name of evangelism. Because we want we want we want to grow our churches, right? So Bob Blinko, the US Director of Frontiers, cited in an email lack of growth as one reason for the translation. So here's the quote. Quote, the big problem is that church planting among the tens of millions of religious Muslims in Turkey has not been successful. It has not even begun. That's that's end quote. Turkey is 99.8% Muslim, according to the CIA World Factbook. uh, Turks estimate that their country has about 5,000 Christians now. But when... Uh, Bosek became a Christian in 1988. He was one of the, a total of 80 Protestants in the country. One significant barrier may be the existing translation of the Bible, Blinko wrote in an email. These are paraphrases that help a conservative Sunni Muslim audience know what the Bible really says. So, okay, let's see. Now, what does what's what's the problem here? Okay, the problem here is Pelagianism, okay? Ultimately, when you boil all of this down, the problem is Pelagianism, okay? Listen, okay? The problem, the reason why there are not more Christians in Turkey has nothing to do with whether or not Bible translations offend Muslim sensibilities. Reason for that is because Scripture is clear 
that every human being is born dead in trespasses and sins, and they are already at war with God. And so, yeah, let, let me cite an example here that will help. Okay, okay. In the United States, you know, we've we've got all kinds of different people out there, okay, who are non-Christians, and they take all kinds of stripes. You got you got hedonistic pagans. You've got your earth muffins. You've got your you you've got your uh, you know atheists, and then you've got your agnostics, and then you got your people who are involved in Wicca, and in, I mean all kinds of stuff like this, okay, right? And uh, and then you know another type of non-Christian would be somebody who is an strident and ardent feminist type, okay? And so in the United States, there's this effort. There's this effort to take the Bible and get rid of masculine language so that it can be more inclusive, so that the feminists won't be offended by the biblical languages and will come to uh, make a decision for Jesus. Well, here's the deal. The reason why atheist or non-believing feminists are not Christians has nothing to do with whether or not the Bible portrays God as Father or whether or not Jesus was truly circumcised and is a guy. You understand what I'm saying? That's not the reason they're not a Christian. The reason why they're not a Christian is because they're born dead in trespasses and sins. The reason they're not a Christian is because every human being is born with a default setting, and that default setting is sinner at war with God. Plain and simple. The reason why people sin is because of original sin. That in Adam, we all fell. Okay? So the idea here is this, is that this is backwards thinking. Okay? This is backwards thinking based upon a wrong view of evangelism. Evangelism is not about trying to make somebody, to convince somebody to make a decision. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is preaching the word of God and preaching law and gospel, okay, to unregenerate sinners born dead in trespasses and sins. And God, through the preaching of his word, through the preaching of the gospel, raises those dead sinners, regenerates them, causes them to be born again. That's how people go from being unbelieving to being believing. What does Scripture say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast, right? We are God's workmanship. So anybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not because a Christian convinced them to make a decision for Jesus. Because, see, with that kind of uh, thinking, you know, I've got to convince you to make a decision for Jesus, then the idea becomes, how much of this can I, you know, tuck away? You know, if you're offended by that, oh, I, I don't need to talk about that. I, I can just I put that off to the side because my ultimate goal is to get you to make a decision. That's not evangelism. That is not evangelism. Evangelism is proclaiming the good news, and God, the Holy Spirit, raises people from the dead through the means of the preaching of the gospel. So what's going on here is, is that they've got a wrong view of, of anthropology, number one. They don't understand and or believe 
what the scripture reveals about all human beings being dead in trespasses and sins. As a result of it, they don't properly understand the biblical teaching or doctrine regarding regeneration. Yeah, there's a reason why it's called regeneration. <laughs> you know, you just kind of think these things through. So so the idea is that they're approaching this all wrong. So they're saying, oh, we're failing. There's only 5,000 Christians in in Turkey, you know. And so in, in the name of church growth, we've got we've to change the biblical language now so that we can make Christianity more appealing to a Muslim mind. This is 180 degrees backwards. It's based upon false doctrine and a false understanding of, of uh, how somebody becomes a Christian. And as a result of it, they are doing something that is dangerous and extremely sinful. They are monkeying with the very text, the very word of God. As a result of this, by the way, we don't have the freedom to do this, okay? As a result of it, it, it this affects Christology now. Okay, because these translations that they're putting out, these Islamic-friendly translations of the Bible, um, it affects Christology. Because if Jesus isn't the Son of God, which, by the way, the original text says, though we us to theu, okay, um, then what is he? Well, you see, you see what I'm saying? What they're trying to do is they think that the reason why Muslims aren't be gonna be, are becoming Christians is because they're offended. Well, of course they're offended. They're born hating God. That's their problem. Every one of us is that way. And you know what? So the solution is this. Preach the word. Call the Muslims to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But that's not working. That's God's prerogative, not yours and mine. We're called to preach the word and to be faithful to what the text says, not change the text or get rid of the offending pieces of it. Anyway, you get what I'm what I'm talking about here. So, um the um Gene Veith on a in a in another post uh, gives an inside perspective on the Islamic friendly Bible that he just posted yesterday. And uh, here's what Gene Veith writes. He said, "By the way, if you want to see more of this, you can find this on Chronic uh, uh, com. That Chronic the blog of Veith. He says you probably missed the comment on the Islamic Friendly Bibles post last week by David Harriman, who worked for the missionary agency that put out the translation in question. And uh, he said, and V says, I continue to be amazed at who all reads this blog. He offered an insider's perspective that I wanted all of you to see. So Gene Veith writes, uh, well, actually, um, David Harriman writes to Gene Veith. He says, Dear Gene, for 18 years, I served as Director of Development slash Director of Advancement for Frontiers, the ministry which produced this Turkish translation of Matthew. While I believe the workers behind this project have good motivations, I also believe they effectively rendered the text compliant with Islam. While the volume in question thankfully included a properly translated Greek to Turkish interlinear, the purpose of the contextualized translation and the related footnotes is to cast a specific Muslim-friendly meaning upon the text itself. You can't do that, by the way. This translation and others produced and advised by Wycliffe, SIL, and Frontiers have been the subject of a recent petition organized by Biblical uh, Missiology. And you can there's a link there that you can uh, click on. It says, the petition fact check document shows how even the footnotes in this Turkish translation fail to properly convey Christ's ontological sonship. Quote, the focus of our concern 
is the text of the Matthew translation, not the Greek-Turkish interlinear. In the Matthew text, son is rendered as representative or proxy, and father is then translated as protector or guardian. However, father, son, and son of God should be translated literally in the text with explanation provided in the footnotes and not the other way around. Quote, one example will illustrate the problems with the Turkish translation. At the baptism of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, son is translated as representative in the text. In the footnotes to this verse, son of God is defined in several ways, such as God's representative, the king, Messiah, God's beloved monarch. The note incorrectly says the term is synonymous with the title of Messiah. Jesus is portrayed only in kingly terms, not with no recognition of his div- divinity or actual sonship. Needless to say, such explanations have the effect of obscuring the full true meaning of Son and Son of God, even if the terms are translated correctly in the footnotes. To get a sense of how Christian witness to and among Muslims has changed profoundly in recent years, I would encourage all Patrick Henry students, um, Gene V teaches at Patrick Henry College, to read the following article, article by former Muslim Dr. Patrick Sukadeo of uh, Barnabas Fund, and the, the link is there on uh, Gene Veith's um, site. He says, Sukadeo's piece shows the organic relationship between the ideas and assumptions behind certain interfaith dialogue approaches, such as the common world and relate uh, the common word between us and the related yell response, and the insider move, uh, movement and its approaches to working among Muslims. David Harriman. So. Yeah, there's some there's some serious problems going on. And 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 here's the problem is that, you know, I asked the question yesterday, who benefits from a church that is biblically illiterate, isn't doctrinally uh, rigorous, isn't theologically rigorous and has, you know, there's no doctrinal de- depth. The answer is not the kingdom of God, not Jesus Christ. Uh who benefits? Well, in this particular case, Muslims do. Or Islam. And well, who controls Islam? Satan. Uh, Islam is not uh, Christianity. Islam is is a false religion that sends people to hell, billions of them, billions of them sent to hell as a result of Islam. And so here's the deal is you got a bunch of Christians out there supposedly doing missions work and evangelism in Muslim countries, and they they don't even have the theological rigor and depth and understanding to know you, number one, you don't monkey with the text of God. God's word stands period. But on top of it, they think that it's their job to convince Muslims to make a decision for Jesus, so they think they can hide offending pieces to make that process easier. That's not evangelism. And this is a direct result of years and years of Pelagianism that's run amok in the United States, and now it's affecting the mission field. And I hate to say this, um, you know, my my experience with people who live in Muslim countries who are Christians, they have far more biblical and theological depth to them than many of the missions agencies, uh, the people who work for the missions agencies who are being sent there to evangelize from the United States. Something to consider. So, uh, yeah, you can't mess with the Word of God. God's Word stands, and yeah, it's going to offend Muslims. It's going to offend non-Christians, period. They're offended by God. They hate God. That's that's what the that's the state that we all come in. So we don't change God's word to make it palatable to help them make a decision. No, 
you prophetically proclaim it, and you point your bony finger at them, and you say, you are a sinner, and you're going to hell. And your false religion of Islam or whatever, is it can't save you. It can't save you and won't save you because the God you're praying to doesn't exist. Just like Baal wasn't there to answer the prayers of those uh, who had the showdown with Elijah on Mount Carmel. They cut themselves and cried out to Baal all day long, and Baal never answered. Why? Because Baal wasn't there. But the God who is there is his name, by the way, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's right, second person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When he was baptized, okay, God the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, right? That's the God who exists, and he calls all of us everywhere to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the message we're called to proclaim, and some, when they hear it, God will regenerate them bring them to repentance, and bring them to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not because we've convinced them, but because God's word raised them from the dead. God's the one doing the work, not us. Our job isn't to convince. This isn't a sales pitch. This is a prophecy, a prophetic word that we proclaim when we preach the gospel. Something to consider. All right, we're up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to uh, take a look at Jimmy Carter's unskillful use of the Scripture. Then I'm going to take a look at some basic rules for rightly understanding the Bible, and we'll foil that with uh, kind of a, a, the doctrine of baptism and how it's misunderstood by many in evangelicalism today because they don't know their Bibles. And then we'll take a look at Doug Paget's interview with John Shelby Spong. So we got a lot of ground still to cover in this first section of Fighting for the Faith. We'll go a little bit long in the first hour uh, before we get to the sermon review. So if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie! 
The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, uh, changing God's word, omitting part of it, actually is forbidden by God's word and could cause you to be cursed, and I mean that in the worst possible way. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, while we're still looking at the news uh, from the Huffington Post, uh, the headline reads, uh, President Jimmy Carter, author's new Bible book, answers hard biblical questions. 
Um, he should not. He should not be trying to do this. Uh, it's clear that he does not know how to rightly handle God's word. And uh, I'll cite some example. Uh, Paul Brandis Rauschenbusch uh, asked the question of President Carter, and the first question was, "Thank you so much for talking with me, President Carter. As I warned, I'm going to be asking the tough questions." So, did God write the Bible? That's the first question. Did God write the Bible? Okay, here's President Carter's answer. God inspired the Bible, but didn't write every word in the Bible. (laughs) Oh, man. God inspired the Bible, but didn't write every word in the Bible. We know, for instance, that stars can't fall on the earth, and stars are much larger than the earth, and that was a limitation of knowledge of the universe or physics or astronomy of that time, but that doesn't bother me at all. So is is the Bible the word of God? Well, God inspired it, but not all of it. It's full of errors, and, and that's just the way it is, right? Now, what's the problem here? He doesn't have the same view of Scripture that Jesus has. Yeah, See, here's the deal, okay? Plain and simple, if your view of Scripture is different than Jesus' view, your view of Scripture is flat-out wrong. And Jesus held it up as the infallible Word of God. Um, and, uh, and, you know, scientific problems and all, if you would. But the problem is, is that the scientific problems really aren't problems when you put those passages into context and you look at what's being said there. Another question. So what do you say about those who point to certain scriptures that women should not teach men or speak in church? For instance, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14. Watch this answer. Jimmy Carter writes, he says, I separated from the Southern Baptists when they adopted the discriminatory attitude towards women because I believe what Paul taught in Galatians, that there is no distinction in God's eyes between men and women, slaves and masters, Jews and non-Jews. Everybody is created equal in the eyes of God. Okay, now, what just happened there? Okay, this, I mean, folks, this is like, almost like cultic programming. If you've ever spent any time talking with somebody in a religious cult, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or whatever, what you'll notice is is that you ask a particular question, it's like pressing a button on like a Chatty Cathy doll. You know, you press button number one, and Chatty Cathy goes, I love you. You press number two, and Chatty Cathy says, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? You know, And you press number three, and Chatty Cathy says, I need to go to the bathroom. And so what happens, it's the same thing here. I mean, this is like some kind of weird programmed response here. You press the button number one, click, and Jimmy Carter says, oh, Galatians says that, you know, that, that, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, so therefore we're not to have this distinction between females and males in the pastoral ministry. The problem is this, is that the verse that he's quoting isn't about the pastoral office. And this is one of the problems, that uh, chronic problems throughout the church that people have, is that they are taking verses that don't deal with a topic and applying them to a passage as if somehow they govern or can wipe out the other passages that deal with, the, with that passage directly. That's not how you're to handle God's word. That passage that he's citing from Galatians chapter 6 isn't talking about the pastoral office. Instead, if we're going to talk about whether or not women should be pastors, 
we must go to the clear passages that deal with the issue of whether or not a woman should be a pastor, and those become the governing texts, not the ones that are not addressing the topic. You see, what he's doing is he's ripping a verse out of context and making that the governing verse on a topic where God actually in his word clearly reveals what he what he intends addressing the issue directly but those those passages are wiped off the table by one that has nothing to do with the pastoral office that's what he's doing here uh, here's another question he says a lot of people point to the bible for reasons why gay people should not be in the church or accepted in any way Jimmy Carter uh, responds, homosexuality was well known in the ancient world well before Christ was born, and Jesus never said a word about homosexuality. In all of his teachings about multiple things, he never said that gay people should be condemned. I personally think it's very fine for gay people to be married in civil ceremonies. What just happened there? (laughs) Jimmy Carter literally just said, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Now, Here's the problem, okay? Um, By saying that, he's tacitly attacking the divinity of Christ. This shows a bad Christology, okay? Because here's the deal. Who is Jesus? Well, Scripture reveals that Jesus Christ is none other than God in human flesh. He is God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh. He is the son of God. He's the son of man. He is uh, the son of God and the son of David. Okay. He's the God man. Okay. Now that being the case, Jesus has existed from eternity or, you know, as John reveals in the opening to his gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. See, already in the beginning, Jesus, son, the logos of the son of God already was beginning. He is beginning. He has existed from eternity past. So here's the here's the issue. Okay, scripture also says that all scripture is God breathed. Okay, so God, God, the one true God, the Holy Spirit inspired the text that we have in First Corinthians, inspired the text that we have in Romans chapter one, inspired the text that we have in the Epistle. Uh, of by Jude, uh, Jesus's half brother, inspired the the book of Leviticus that clearly says that uh, that a man should not lie with another man as a man lies with a woman. That is an abomination to God. That is an abomination. So now, technically, did Jesus say those words when he was alive on the earth? They're not, it's not recorded for us in either of the four Gospels. But the Apostle John makes it clear that if everything that Jesus had said and done had been written, he says probably all the books in the world could not contain it, right? But what we have about Jesus is everything that's necessary for faith and salvation and trust in him and to know what he taught. Now, that being said... Um, it's clear that Jesus, by virtue of his eternal divinity, has said something very specific about homosexuality. He addresses it clearly. In fact, all scripture, all scripture, all of scripture is red letters. Why? Because all scripture is God breathed. 
And since Jesus is the one true God in human flesh, we can say that Jesus' opinion, Jesus' thoughts regarding homosexuality are the same thoughts that he shares in common with the other members of the Trinity, right? God the Holy Spirit. You think God the Holy Spirit has his opinion of homosexuality and God the Father has his own opinion? And then, you know, Jesus, God the Son, you know, he's got his own opinion. And they all, you know, they, they all tolerate and, you know, and... You know, to say, yeah, we agree to disagree on this. Not at all. So when um, Jimmy Carter says something like this, um, homosexuality was homosexuality was well known in the ancient world well before Christ was born, and Jesus never said a word about homosexuality. Technically, that's not true. Jesus, by virtue of his divinity, has spoken very clearly about the topic of homosexuality. So here's the problem: is is that Jimmy Carter should not be writing any books about the Bible, period. It's it's clear he doesn't understand the basics of biblical hermeneutics, which I'm going to talk about right here uh, in, during this segment right now. In fact, if you want to follow along, you can find this at my blog, letterofmark.us, and that's M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S, letterofmark.us. And it was posted today, uh, March 23rd, 2012. The, the headline reads... Basic Rules for Rightly Understanding the Bible. Okay, so below are a set of basic rules for rightly understanding the Bible. These were taken from multiple hermeneutics texts as well as articles and a reading list for further studies provided at the end of the post. Now, I only cite four things there, but I, here's the deal. It's not about the number of volumes. It's about the quality of those volumes. So here's the rules. Rule number one, Christ and the apostles explained Scripture by Scripture. So 1A, Jesus' ministry de demonstrated his belief that, that the Bible is the supreme authority. Jesus quoted scripture to the devil in the, in the wilderness to, to respond to temptations. He defended himself with scripture um, in John 10, 34 through 36. He expounded Moses and the prophets to the disciples to show what he was that he was supposed to rise from the dead. Peter's Pentecost sermon relied on the authority of Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And when he preaches, uh, when preachers use this principle, they make their text the center of their sermon and support doctrines and assertions by other scripture passages. So that's the understanding. Now, now, now 1B. So the literal language of scripture is to be preferred. Okay, now when pe somebody says, oh, you're just a Bible literalist, do you say yes and no? Okay. Uh, the literal language of Scripture is to be preferred unless otherwise demanded by the context or parallel passages or analogy. As Martin Chemnitz shows, this principle is especially important when considering the gospel and the sacraments. Yet, much of the Bible is written in figurative language, which then requires special rules to properly interpret the God-intended meaning. Jesus' teaching was filled with figures of speech, both his parables and the I am passages in, in the Gospel of John. Yet Jesus did not take figuratively the passages, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the Sadducees wanted to do. Preachers need to identify figurative expressions in the Psalms, prophecies, and apocalyptic bo books so that the people will not be swayed by the arguments of the cults who misuse figures of speech. 1C. Scripture interprets Scripture. Passages in both Testaments, of so the Old and New Testaments, which speak about the same subject must be considered as being in full agreement with one another, lest clear passages 
less clear passages must always be understood by the more clear passages. So the idea is that Scripture interprets Scripture, and when the Bible talks about a topic, okay, when it's talking about a particular doctrine or an issue or a sin or something like that, the clear passages govern the unclear, not the other way around. And so the idea is if you're going to study the Bible and when God speaks, for instance, we don't go to passages that talk about, um, you know, you, you, when we, we talk about baptism, okay, we look for passages that specifically address the doctrine of baptism, what it is, who's working, what it does, okay? Then you look for the clear passages, baptism does X, Y, or Z. You look for language like that, and passages that have nothing to do with baptism don't get to overthrow the clear passages about baptism, okay? For instance, you know, you don't go to, you, you don't quote something from Elijah's uh, encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and, you know, rip a, a phrase out of context there to overthrow a clear passage about baptism because uh, baptism isn't addressed. It isn't, isn't the subject of the passage there at uh, at, at the prophets of uh, First Kings chapter 18, I think. Anyway, so that's the idea. And so clear passages govern unclear, period. Okay, now Luther also declared, if you will interpret well and securely, take Christ with you, for he is the man whom everything concerns. Luther shows that Christ portrayed himself as the center of Scripture, as he discussed in John chapter 3, verse 14. Okay, and that's actually, we got a sermon on that today. Uh, Luther says, Christ thereby gives us real, uh, real ability to explain Moses and all the prophets. He tells us clearly that Moses, with all his stories and figures, points to him, refers to him, and means him in the sense that he is the center from which the entire circle has been drawn and towards which it looked, and whoever directs himself to this center belongs in the circle, for Christ is the central spot of the circle, and when viewed aright, all stories in Holy Scripture refer back to Christ. Okay, Rule number 1E, law and gospel. Okay, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession states, it is necessary to divide these things, the law and the gospel, aright, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved as a worker who need not be ashamed, who rightly cuts or rightly divides the word of truth. So we must see that Scripture ascribes to the law what Scripture ascribes to the law and what it promises, for it praises works in such a way as not to remove the free promises. Okay, rule number two. So the, all of those, by the way, were that was rule run with a whole bunch of subsets. Rule number two, no human being has the right to read his own views into the Bible. That's called eisegesis. Let me read again. No human being has the right to read his own views into the Bible. Quote, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's Second Peter chapter two, uh, cha- uh, Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty. Private interpretation has been responsible for many erroneous doctrines that are held by cultists and members of various Christian sects. Private interpretation es no bueno. Okay, stay away from that stuff. Narcissus, by the way, is a form is a very pernicious form of private interpretation that robs the scriptures of their intended meaning. Okay, Rule number three, when the Holy Spirit has interpreted a text for the biblical reader, that interpretation must be accepted. Let me give you an example here that's not exactly the Holy Spirit, 
but you know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit is when uh, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds uh, in in, uh, the, in the field. Okay, talking about how uh, you know a farmer went out and sowed good seed, and an enemy came in and sowed uh, tares uh, in in, you know, in with the uh, with the wheat, and both came up together. You know, Jesus gives an interpretation of that parable. Therefore, that interpretation must stand. You cannot give an interpretation of that parable that contradicts Jesus' interpretation. His interpretation governs. In fact, no more commentary is needed. He gives us the interpretation. We go with that. That's what rule three is. Rule four, only the scriptures are the norm of interpretation, not the church fathers or tradition or the inner light or the pious self-conscious or dreams or visions, things like that, right? Isaiah chapter eight, verses 19 through 20 make this very clear. It says, quote, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. In other words, back to God's word. God says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 19, the same sentiment is expressed. Quote, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So Jesus has not directed the church to the church fathers, a magisterium of clergy, to synods, to personal mystical experiences, and to famous name theologians for true guidance, but to the Old Testament and his teachings and the word of the apostles. The biblical interpreter must establish the correctness of his exposition only from the Bible itself. Luther pointed out that when the church fathers interpreted the text correctly, they simply set forth the meaning as it was found in the Bible itself. And the last rule, human reason may not be admitted as the norm or the Lord to determine biblical interpretation. Biblical teachings are often a stumbling block to people just as they were in Paul's day. Okay, And this kind of goes back to the, the story about Islamic-friendly Bibles, right? Uh, it, human reason is getting in the way here. Okay, So human reason may not be admitted as the norm or the Lord to determine biblical interpretation. Biblical teachings are often a stumbling block to people just as they were in Paul's day who lamented the fact that the doctrine of Christ and him crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. See 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23. Jesus prayed to his father that his father would hide the truth from the wise and the prudent and reveal them to babes. So there is a proper as well as an improper use of reason relative to interpretation of the Bible's meaning. The interpreter uses reason to grasp the meaning of the biblical text. Reason's function is to comprehend what the Word of God is communicating and what it reveals about the realm of nature. But reason does not have the right to reject or reinterpret the doctrines of the word which it might find distasteful or intellectually unpalatable. Reason cannot fathom or explain the deep things made known in Scripture, and except the Holy Spirit does reveal and make them known. This limitation also applies to the enlightened reason of those who've been regenerated. So the idea is this. 
you're not to have a magisterial use of reason where your reason sits over God's word. And when God's word comes into conflict with your reason, your reason goes, eh, now, and shoots it down. Okay? That's a form of rationalism. Okay? And we are not to approach the biblical text in that way. When something comes in conflict with our reason, our reasons to bend the knee and we're to use our reason to comprehend what God has revealed even if we don't understand how it is so, okay? We're dealing with God's things, God's truth, not our truth. And it, it because we're sinful and fallen, we already are born with a natural inclination to reject what God has revealed, and that still persists in our sinful flesh until Christ returns, so we are to submit our flesh and our reasoning to God's word, plain and simple. So those are the sound, uh, Those th- th- these are some basic rules for biblical interpretation, and I'm telling you, you you stick with these, you stick with these, you're 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 not going to be making a lot of errors when it comes to the Bible. Not a lot at all. In fact, you're gonna you're gonna the Bible will come alive, and you'll be able to understand it the way God the Holy Spirit intended for it to be understood. Now, that being the case, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to use the topic of baptism. And what um, potential church um, out there in Florida, now, they're not really a church yet, they're, they're just a church in Potentia, uh, Troy Gramling and the gang, they're going to be doing something called eye baptisms during, uh, during Easter. And uh, here's the uh, audio from the video that they've posted regarding eye baptisms. And then we'll take a look at the, what the biblical texts say regarding what, what it says regarding baptism. So here's um, potential churches... Uh, one minute long video regarding the upcoming eye baptisms. Baptism paints a picture, tells a story, and makes a statement. Not just any story, your story, your statement, and your picture. So baptism tells a story, makes a statement, and paints a picture. Mm-hmm. And, and it tells your story, your statement, and it paints your picture. Okay, biblical or not biblical. Here at the I campus, we want to be a part of your baptism moment. What? So they want to be part of your baptism moment. That's really nice of them. It's an internet baptism? It's simple. We are going to share your baptism moment worldwide this Easter. Step one, email iCampus at potentialchurch.com and request a baptism kit. We will send you a free shirt, bracelet, and instructions. Step two, yeah, don't find a pastor. Just find a beach or a bathtub. Yeah. So have a friend dunk you. Okay, so baptism is your statement, your story, is your picture. Just grab a friend, have him dunk you. We'll take a photograph of it, and that's your baptism, right? Wow, there's so many things wrong with that, but here's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to let the biblical text tell us what baptism is. And here, we're going to apply the rules of sound biblical interpretation. Scripture interprets Scripture. Clear passages govern unclear. And when a passage deals directly with a particular topic and it clearly defines what's going on, we are to have that as a clear governing passage. Oh, and by the way, we're going to submit reason 
to the scriptures and where we say, wait a second, that's not possible. We're going to say, uh, 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 uh. Our reason has to be governed by the scriptures, and so the, the the proper use of reason is to comprehend what God reveals in the biblical text, plain and simple. So what we're going to be looking at here, um, we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2, and Titus chapter 3. I could go on, but uh, this will just make the point, okay? All of these are the clear passages that teach about baptism. In fact, um, you will look long and hard to find any passage that says baptism is your statement or that baptism is you making a statement or painting a picture or anything of the sort, okay? Instead, these passages reveal to us what God does and intends baptism is and how it's to be understood, plain and simple. So again, Clear, these are clear passages that address baptism, tell us what's going on, tell us what it's about, what it's for, and what it does, and it's going to conflict with your reason. I guarantee it. It's going to conflict with your reason, but your reason needs to submit to what God's Word says, and if you disagree with this, then it's your job to find biblical passages that clearly, clearly teach what you think baptism is all about, okay? So here's here's the deal. We're going to start with Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, tail end of Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter is letting it fly. People are cut to the quick, okay? And they're going to ask him, what are they going to do? So this is the tail end of it. I'm going to Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 36. So Peter's preaching. He says, let all those in the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is like the the, the last kicker in a sermon. Verse 37, now when they, that's the crowd that had gathered, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Now, I'm going to point this out in the Greek. The be baptized, passive voice, not active. It's not your doing. Be baptized means this is something that's happening to you. If it was something you did, it would be in the active voice, okay? Passive voice. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay? So, just in the, just using the language of the text, this is a clear passage regarding baptism. This is what the topic is. This isn't about anything else. And it says baptism is it's something done to you. We know this because it's done, it's spoken of in the passive voice, and it's for the forgiveness of your sins. So we could so if I were to say, okay, first teaching regarding baptism, Bible clearly says baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. You'd say, wait a second, it doesn't mean that. Well, that's what it says. It says it's for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the Greek is, is baptized into the forgiveness of sins. And there's a good cross-reference here, too. In fact, um, with Paul's conversion, uh, Acts chapter 22, I'll start at verse 12. It says this, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Paul, Brother Paul, receive your sight. 
At that very hour I received my sight and saw him, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him from everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Notice the, again the passive voice. Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay. So here in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, we got the apostle Peter saying, Baptism, you know, repent, be baptized, passive voice, for the forgiveness of sins. Paul, when he was converted, Ananias said to him, rise and wash away your sins. So I could say biblically that, that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It washes away sins. Now we can look at Romans chapter 6, another passage that talks about baptism clearly. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So I can say, well, the clear passages regarding baptism teach, number one, it's for the forgiveness of sins. It washes away sins. That when we're baptized, we're buried with Christ. That's what the clear text says. I can then take it to Colossians chapter 2. Um, you know, here's what it says. See to it that no one, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and, and the rule and all authority. Now we'll listen to this, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hand. So Christian circumcision is not done by human hands, but it's done by the hands of Christ. Well, watch this. By putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, uh, clear passages. Again, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It washes away sins. In our baptisms, we're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. And our hearts are circumcised by Christ. And now you're likely going to say, wait, wait a second. Really? Well, come on, Chris. It makes it sound like you believe in salvation by works. Well, actually, the Bible directly addresses that. You know, that's one of the common things that comes up when you start unpacking these passages. A lot of times people sit there and go, wait a second. If we're if if baptism does all of those things, then you're saying that we're saved by works. Here's what Paul writes in Titus chapter three. I'll start at verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So you, right off the bat, this passage is saying we're not saved by works. Nuh-uh. Okay? 
He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Right. Who's doing the work in baptism? Now, granted, okay, your pastor is there. He's pouring the water or dunking you in the tub or you know, however you're being baptized, okay? Yeah, the pastor's there, but who's really doing the work? Well, if baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, it washes away sins. If baptism is a washing of regeneration, that our hearts are circumcised by Christ and our baptism, that we're buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ. And by the way, all of this language is from the clear passages that teach on baptism. Those passages being clear about baptism and on the subject of baptism govern everything else. In fact, a passage that has nothing to do with baptism doesn't have the ability, according to sound biblical hermeneutics, to overthrow what these clear passages say. Okay, Baptism is God's work. God is the one acting. God is the one washing away sins. God is the one forgiving. God is the one burying us in Christ's death and raising us in his resurrection. God, Christ is the one, even Colossians 2 makes it clear, that in baptisms our, heart, our, our hearts are circumcised by Christ. This is what the clear passages say. Now, secondarily, I would point you to the writings of the church fathers. The ancient church fathers understood these passages this way. Why? Because the text says this. That's why when we hear in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, that language comes directly out of Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So whose work is baptism? Is baptism something that you do as a statement to the world or to paint a picture or, you know, or anything of that sort? No. Baptism is God's work, not ours. And you're going to look long and you're going to look hard and you're going to come up with a big goose egg looking for passages that basically try to make the case that baptism is something that we do to show the world that we've made a decision for Jesus. Because, number one, that's not how we're regenerated. And number two, not one of the clear passages say that. So if we're going to apply sound biblical hermeneutics to the biblical texts, we're going to have to, do, we're going to, have to come to grips that the clear passages regarding baptism clearly show it's God's work, not ours. And there's some amazing things that God does to people when they're baptized, and all the clear passages bear that out. Something to consider. These are the sounds of the Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. Doug Paget presiding as they play their rendition Strauss's also sprung Zarathustra set free from the modernist limited, limited definitions of notes they now 
allow the spirit to guide them in this most liberating of ways. tears to my eyes every time <laughs> okay <clears throat> talking about uh, letting reason control the scripture which you're not supposed to do your reason as a christian your reason submits to scripture um here's part of an interview that uh, doug paget did with john shelby spong <clears throat> regarding his book reclaiming the bible for the for a non-religious world and i want you to listen to his view of the bible and I want you to listen to what he thinks the Bible is all about. You, what you're going to find shocking is that John Shelby Spong is going to literally, and I mean literally, say something about the Bible that you could hear from a lot of seeker-driven evangelicals. Yeah, it's it's eerily frightening is what it is. But here's uh, John Shelby Spong, uh, Doug Paget introducing John Shelby Spong as they discuss his book, Reclaiming the Bible for the Non-Religious World. Hey, welcome back, Doug Badger Radio. Uh, talking with John Shelby Spong, the author of the book "Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World," an excellent read. Though, uh, wants to encourage you to think about the Bible in some new ways. And Bishop Spong, before the break, you were mentioning that you had written the book uh, in an effort to tr contribute to the conversation, where there would be an option between reading the Bible in a way in which you're supposed to, at a very superficial level, just take every word from it and sort of imagine that that's exactly how it happens, and. And, uh, yeah, see, you know, believing the Bible to, you know, and understanding it literally, that's a superficial way of reading it. And Doug Paget and John Shelby Spong's way of looking at things. Now, keep in mind, okay, listen, where it's supposed to be taken literally, it's to be understand understood literally. Where it's talking historical narrative, that's what really happened. That's how it went down. Uh, that That is being one choice, sort of a literal reading in that way, or giving up on the Bible altogether. So... Tell us what your what, what your argument in the book is for what's the third option? What what should people do? Yeah. Because so many of us, you know, have felt that have felt that tension. I know that as a pastor, we we read the Bible out loud together in sort of its entirety and and try to and try to listen to it on every for everything that it wants to have something to say. But um, boy, it doesn't say a lot about things that are really important to our lives today, frankly. Um, and a lot of people, you know, have sermons where they take one sentence out of the Bible and then talk for twelve or twenty right. minutes about it. So how, yeah, that would be the normal seeker-driven sermon. How should someone approach the Bible if it's not in a literal form or in a sort of, you know, it's really not that important, just skip the whole thing and wait till you hear this answer. Well, I really think it is important, and I think that if you understand what it's about, that it's quite relevant to today's world. I think there are three things that the Bible says underneath its literal words. One is that life is holy, all life is holy. Mm. And that affects the way we relate to other people. So he believes the Bible literally teaches that life is holy. Okay. 
secondly, all life is love. That's really the basis of the. Jesus. So he 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 takes that idea literally that all life is loved. Jesus story that every life is of infinite value to that which is holy, and is in the, is the subject of the love of this deity. And the third is the sort of meaning of the Holy Spirit, and that is that every life is called to be everything that it can be. Every life is called to be everything that it can be. Boy, isn't that the basic concept behind every seeker-driven sermon? Weird. Now, if the, if the Christian church is dedicated to proclaiming the holiness of all life, the fact that God loves every living thing, and that we fulfill our destiny by becoming all that we are capable of being. We fulfill our destiny. We fulfill our purpose by becoming all that God intended us to be. Isn't that weird? I mean, this sounds like exactly like Rick Warren's purpose-driven concept coming through John Shelby Spong with slightly reworked words, but the same idea altogether. It becomes very life-affirming. Uh, the heart of the Christian story uh, is says that somehow people experience the presence of God in the life of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, that's the experience. Then they tried to explain it, and there's a great difference between experiencing something and explaining something. The way I try to illustrate this with people is to say that an epileptic seizure in the first century is identical with an epileptic seizure in the 21st century. But if you'd read the explanations of the first century as to what's going on and the explanations of the 21st century, you'd have vastly different explanations. But that doesn't invalidate the experience. So what I'm trying to do is to get people to go beneath the explanation and ask the question, what is the experience? Mm. When I listen to a lot of people talk about the relationship of... So ignore the words and, and try to get to the experience of the text. Jesus to God. I get the impression that uh -huh. Jesus is to God sort of what Clark Kent was to Superman. Right. Sort of God in disguise walking around. Right. And you don't know he's really Superman until yeah. he goes into the telephone right. booth and takes off his shirt and you see the big mm -hmm. S. Yeah. But what's, what's happening back there is there's something about the life of this Jesus that expands the lives of everybody around him and that breaks down the barriers that separate us from one another. And Paul seems to understand that. He says if you get inside the mm. Christ experience, there's neither Jew nor Greek. If you get inside the Christ experience, that's not in the text. And he's taking the Galatian text that Jimmy Carter uses for ordaining women out of context here. Let's talk about the Christ experience. Neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free. I find it fascinating that, that Mark puts a Gentile soldier underneath the cross to interpret the cross in the final chapter of his gospel. Mm. It's a Gentile soldier who's unclean by Jewish standards, who's uncircumcised, who doesn't eat kosher, who doesn't keep the law. And right. yet he Wrong says, kind of guy. Yeah, he says, look at this man on the cross who loves so deeply that he can give his life away and not even hate the people who are killing him. That's what God is like, he says. And and I think that's what you look for. How do we bring people into the experience? I thought the soldier said, truly, this man was the son of God. Weird. You know, it's like, what's the point of having any words if you could just kind of manipulate them into saying whatever you want them to say? Strange. Of of whatever God means, that we are enabled to live more fully and love more deeply or wastefully and be all that we're capable of being, and then build a world where everybody can be who they are without trying to impose standards. When I listen to the political debate that's going on in this country today, it seems to me that everybody's trying to say, you've got to be like what I want you to be. 
That is, if I think birth control is wrong, you've got to abide by Mm -hmm. my decision. If I think abortion is wrong in every set of circumstances, then you've got to abide by my decision. If I think homosexuality is an aberration, then you've got to accept that, and we're going to put it into the force of law. Mm -hmm. I think the Bible would challenge all three of those points of view. Really? This, This is news to me. People understood the Bible. And if people saw that it's a, it's a. So how does somebody go about changing their their stand their their way of reading their approach to reading the Bible well, or, their, think, or their engagement think, with it? Yeah, don't don't focus on the words. Whatever you do, don't. No, 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 no. you got to get it to the experience of the Christ thing. You know, I don't think you can do it just by picking up the book and reading it. I think that's where the clergy have fallen down. Uh huh. Yeah. See, that's the problem with those clergy. They pick up the book and they read it. See, that's where they find. Don't you understand? You're, you're supposed to use some John Shelby Spong glasses and, and lenses to read the the Bible so that you can get to its deeper experiential meaning. Every clergyman grad, graduates from any place besides Oral Roberts University or Liberty Baptist or or uh, one of those really fundamentalist schools, every person knows the things that I've got in this book. The problem is they don't talk about it. That's right. It they don't talk like about it because they feel like if they talk about it, people are going to say, I don't want to go to one of those churches. Where the right. So why do we That's have a population? Right. This is what's intriguing to me. It seems like there used to be a time where you had a population. Uh, there's, a, there's some people who think you have a population that's more... Um, conservative than their clergy, and other times you have a time where the clergy are more conservative than the population. Yep. And so, in certain <laughs> tribes in our in our world, you know, if you look at at, at, at uh, mainline congregations, uh, progressive congregations, you tend to have a very progressive congregants, um, and sometimes not as progressive of clergy. And in evangelical churches, you have the flip the the, the other way, right? And yep. and what well, what do we do about that? How should someone read the Bible, and and in with with whom should they read it, if they well, want think, to have the kind of experience you're advocating for in your book? Yeah, I think what pastors, ordained pastors who have the training, ought to do is to become teachers of their congregation. I don't think it's what you preach about from the pulpit. Uh-huh. People can't talk back when you're in the pulpit. You come on as if you're the voice of God. But if you're in a classroom with a blackboard or a... yet Peter says to you know to preach the word as if you're handling the very or teaching the very oracles of God weird isn't it just funny <clears throat> flip chart of something or other uh-huh. and you're you're more like saying now this is what the scholars now see this is how it seems to me mm-hmm. and then people can process it at their own speed this is what it seems to me not what it says but what it seems to me notice the subjective ego becomes the guide and the interpreter, not what God intended through the words. And they can ask questions, and they can challenge it, unless you're the Pope or God. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know all the, the answers. And I think in this teaching, and I do this all the time, This is the, and I find the response of people, they feel a great burden is taken off of them. They want to believe, and they, they don't want to think about it because they know they can't believe. Nobody that I know of really believes that a star can travel through the sky so slowly that wise men on camels can, <laughs> can keep follow. up with it. Right. Uh, no, those are... Yeah, that couldn't possibly have miraculously happen. No way, because stars just don't do that. Oh, and by the way, you know, people just don't walk on water either. So there's no way that that happened either. And yeah, dead people don't really rise from the dead. I mean, <laughs> that never had... So Jesus is still moldering somewhere. I mean, uh, the, uh, reasonable people, you know, we know what can and can't happen already and what is possible in the world. So when we read the Bible and our reason comes in conflict with something that we just know can't possibly happen... 
we think the Bible's wrong, and we know that's correct because we can still experience the Jesus experience if we could just get behind the, the literal meanings of the words. Those are interpretive ways mm-hmm. of trying to tell a story. What the virgin birth says is that we have found in Jesus something that we don't yeah. believe human life by itself could ever have created. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't mean that, you know, a virgin gave birth, because virgins can't. have anything to do with biology. Yeah, and it's a, it's a better way, story that way. That That's the thing that kind of breaks story. my heart about the whole thing, is that when you better. when you read it in just the way, like, I don't know, that crazy stuff used to happen, doesn't happen anymore, so let's wait, you know, for God to come bring us back to the when land where crazy in, stuff happens. Who wants, no, who wants right. that story? When I lived in Lynchburg, Virginia, a town I shared with a young man named Jerry Falwell mm-hmm. for about five years, Yeah. I announced in my congregation that I was going to do a series on the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. And it was great. I announced this in September. It's yeah. a great anxiety. Sort of like he's going to take <laughs> Santa Claus away from us. That's right. And the anxiety Cover the kids built. Yeah. And I started it on the first Sunday in Advent. And despite the anxiety, we had standing room only people in mm-hmm. that class. Mm-hmm. And the class went on for about 10 weeks. I just mm. started it four weeks before Christmas because I knew people would be thinking about it. But it takes a while to go into all of those, the aspects of those stories. And at the end of 10, maybe 12 weeks, people came up to me and said, you know, you what you've really done is to make Christmas totally meaningful to me in a way that it wasn't before. You know, the reason we go to Santa Claus is we don't understand the images that the biblical story uses. We understand Santa Claus. You know, he's a big fat elf who does nice things and gets his greatest joy out of making people happy. That's a pretty good idea. I think that's sort of a Christ function. <laughs> Jesus is a big fat elf that makes people happy. And and so so we could relate these things, and and it made all the sense in the world. When Matthew tells the story of the wise men, what he's saying is that a star, which shines over every nation of the world, mm. uh, announces the birth of Jesus, and that birth has the power to draw all people out of their tribal identity into a new kind of community. That's what the Pentecost story Beautiful. means. The Holy Spirit comes on the church. Oh, what a fanciful interpretation that is. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the words. In fact, it takes the words and just says, nah, that doesn't mean what that says. We're to throw all that out and just pour in our own meaning, you know, because our reason can govern what the Bible says. Because, you know, everybody knows that stars don't go t- slowly and travel to Bethlehem, that virgins don't really give birth, and dead guys don't really rise from the dead. No, no, no. Jesus is just like Santa Claus, a big fat elf who wants to make people happy. That's what God's really all about, isn't it? You know, come and join the Jesus experience. See, that's what happens. And that's what happens when you don't believe the Bible on the Bible's terms. You're left at the end with just subjective ideas it's that self-actualize and who knows i mean you know one interpreter one thing and another interpreter another who cares as long as you're just experiencing the jesus thing and, and you're happy yeah so there you go <clears throat> two completely different ways to read the text one's right and the other is wrong and i can tell you this spong is wrong All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to two fantastic sermons by Jeremy Rohde, where he handles, rightly handles, uh, the Old Testament texts and deals with 
Jesus Christ, law and gospel, sin and grace, and miracles, all on the Bible's own terms, and doesn't let reason govern, and as a result of it, he preaches the biblical gospel to you. Yeah, you're not going to want to miss either of them. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Our number two, we're well into it here at Fighting for the Faith. We've got two very good sermons for you that basically take all the stuff we've been talking about, how to rightly handle the biblical text, and demonstrate it using just good hermeneutical, exegetical excellence. Law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, real miracles, the Bible interpreted on its own terms, no allegorizing, no subjectivizing, just good stuff. And no artificial flavorers added either. Bad and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, two of them, come to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Pastor Jeremy Rohde presiding, my former pastor. And the only reason he's my former pastor is because I moved to Indiana. The first sermon is entitled, Our Serpent of Salvation. Strange title. Uh, based on two texts, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, 
as well as, if you want to put your finger there, uh, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. I'll get to both of them in a minute. The second is entitled The Altar of Incense, and the, the text is Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Alright, let me kill the music. So, before we get to the sermons, let me read the uh, the text for the first sermon. I will begin with the uh, Old Testament text, uh, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Here we go. Uh, it reads, From Mount Hor, as they went by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. That's the manna that God provided. <clears throat> then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed. For the people, and the Lord said to Moses, "Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live." So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's the Old Testament text. The New Testament, the Gospel text, is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter three, starting at verse fourteen, ending at twenty-one. Here's what it says, and Jesus is speaking. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All right, so here's the first sermon by Pastor Rody, entitled, Our Serpent of Salvation. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Compare our Lord Jesus to a lion. That we understand. The lion of the tribe of Judah... Who dares to rouse him? He has triumphed over his prey. He devours death itself. Compare our Lord Jesus to a lamb. That too we understand. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb who is bound to the altar of the cross. Compare our Lord Jesus to a hen? Well, strange as it sounds, Jesus weeps for those who reject him, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together 
as a hen gathers her chicks. A lion, we get. A lamb, we get. Even a hen, we get. But compare our Lord Jesus to a snake, to a serpent. What kind of Christian would dare say such a thing? Or who would claim this scandalous and offensive thing of our Lord Jesus? In the gospel lesson today, we hear Jesus himself make this claim and make this comparison. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. What a strange comparison to make. But our Lord Jesus is showing us something. He's teaching us the proper way to read and understand the Old Testament. He is teaching us that in everything they wrote, Moses and the prophets point to Christ. It is Christ who is the very center of the Old Testament, just as it is Christ who is the very center of the New Testament. All the stories of Holy Scripture, if rightly understood, point to Christ. In order to help Nicodemus understand who Christ is and what Christ had come to do, our Lord uses an Old Testament story, the account of Moses lifting up a bronze serpent so that the people might live. Just as Moses lifted the snake on a pole, Jesus will be lifted up on the cross. In the wilderness with Moses, the people grumbled against God. What should have been the most joyful journey, they made into a miserable one. God had freed them. God was leading them. Though the enemies surrounded them, God himself fought for them. Though at times the way forward looked impossible, God opened a way for them through the heart of the sea. When they hungered, God fed them himself miraculously. All the while, God taught his people wonderful things and spoke to them through Moses. What should have been a joyful journey of getting to know God, the people made into misery. At every turn, they despised what God did or what God provided. They always wanted something different or something more. God's way wasn't good enough for them. Today we would say that God's way wasn't contemporary enough. God's way wasn't relevant enough. The people despised God's way and wanted their own worldly way. And so when God had finally had enough of this nonsense, he sent fiery serpents among the people. It's as if God said, you want to live like snakes? 
you'll live with snakes. The serpents God sent are called fiery serpents, either because of their color or because of the pain that came with their bite. And once bitten, many of the Israelites died. People today like to think that God doesn't take sin very seriously. They like to think that God won't really punish sin. After all, most people believe in heaven, but who believes in hell? So they despise God's word and refuse to believe it or live by it. They twist God's word to say what they want it to say. And when God or his word is simply too inconvenient, they just ignore it. The story of the fiery serpents serves as a warning. God does indeed take sin seriously. And if we persist, he will not hesitate to punish sin severely. Even his own people, if they despise him and his word, may come to a swift and painful death. In fact, even the New Testament teaches that God put to death some who misused the Lord's Supper. Let these things serve as a warning to us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When God sent serpents among the Israelites, he got their attention. Those who did not die immediately turned to Moses and did what we did this very morning. They confessed their sins. We have sinned, they said, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and God answered, but he did not answer as the people wanted him to. The people wanted God to take the serpents away, but God does not take them away. Instead, he gives them an antidote. He does not remove the curse. Instead, he provides a way of being saved from the curse. The Lord answered Moses saying, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. If the people wanted to be saved from the serpent's curse, they would have no choice but to believe God's word, look upon the bronze serpent, and be healed. This must have sounded absolutely ridiculous to them. How could looking at a bronze statue of a snake save anyone? Moses, have you lost your mind? No one wants to look at this hideous snake on a pole. Take that graven idol down. Give us medicine instead. Give us a treatment program, 10 steps or 12. Give us something reasonable, something that works, not some worthless bronze statue of a snake. It's quite possible that many died in their unbelief. 
They followed their reason rather than God's word. But God had attached his word of promise to that bronze snake lifted up on a pole. Whoever looked upon the bronze snake would be healed. Today, God no longer attaches his word of promise to a bronze snake. He attaches his word of promise to the water of baptism, to the bread and wine of his supper. Pastor Rody, have you lost your mind? It's just plain water. It's just plain wine and bread. People who say that baptism and the supper do nothing are the same people who would have despised the bronze serpent and died. God would save his people. He would be merciful. But he saves them only in his own way. He saves them only in the way that he has chosen. Though the bronze serpent appears to be nothing more than a statue, he will save them only through that statue of a serpent. Though the water in the baptismal font looks to be nothing more than plain water, God will save us only through this water. He says it is a new birth of water and the Spirit. Though the wine and the bread appear to be nothing more than wine and bread, God will save us only through these. He says they are the body and blood of Jesus given for your forgiveness. As we hear this Old Testament story of the bronze serpent, it might seem like these people who were bitten by snakes are quite different from us. But consider this. Have we not also been bitten by a venomous snake? Have we not also been bitten by the same poisonous serpent who sunk his fangs into Adam and Eve? Yes, we find ourselves bitten and poisoned. We find, our, find ourselves sick and inflamed with sins. We burn with evil thoughts and lusts and greed. The fiery serpent's venom is at work in each and every one of us. And there is no cure for it. Death is imminent. So like Israel of old, we come to our senses and we confess our sins to God. God, I have sinned against you and against your word. And then we plead with God to remove from our lives the serpent and his terrible bite, his poison and our sin. But as with Israel, God does not take the serpent away. Instead, he gives us an antidote. He does not remove the curse. Instead, he provides a way for us to be saved from the curse. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so God has lifted up the Son of Man on the cross 
that whoever believes in him might be saved. Eternal life is what you have when you look to Jesus. Jesus is the only antidote. Jesus is the only cure. Jesus is the only one who can save us from the serpent's poison and from eternal death. So as often as you find yourself bitten, as often as you find yourself burning with sins, as often as you fear death, turn to the one who is lifted up on the cross and be healed. As Luther says, Christ is our serpent of salvation. Many religions, many churches, claim to have some other medicine that will heal you, some treatment program that will cure you, something contemporary and relevant. But in truth, there is only one thing that can save you, the serpent who is lifted up on the cross. Why does our Lord compare himself to a serpent? Because he is the Son of Man, pure and holy, who takes upon himself all your sins. Your sins aren't yours anymore. They're his. He is the sinner. He is the snake. All sin and all curse he takes to himself. For us and for our salvation, he is not only regarded as an ungodly person, but as a venomous worm, unworthy of life, a menace to the world, someone who ought to be killed. And so from the cross he says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Why does the pure and holy Son of God allow himself to be fashioned into a sinner and a snake so that we, sinners, might look upon him and be saved? so that we who have been bitten by the ancient serpent might be saved from its venom, that we might be released over and over again from the burning of our sins and be spared eternal death. Look upon Jesus and be healed. Through the serpent that Moses lifted up on the pole, the Israelites were saved from earthly death. Through Christ, lifted up on the cross, you are saved from eternal death. Look to Christ and you will be healed. From his spear-pierced side flow water and blood. Into the baptismal font flows the water that soothes the serpent's fiery bite and cools the burning of all your sin. Into the chalice flows the anti-venom, forgiveness and life in his blood.
What love is this? Unconditional love that God has for sinners. Unconditional love that brings the pure and holy Son of Man to allow Himself to be fashioned into a sinner and a snake so that you might be declared righteous, a saint. He is lifted up on the cross so that you might find relief from the curse over and over again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen. See the difference? Oh man, that was a great sermon. Masterfully done, weaving the Old Testament text and the New Testament text together, and pointing us to Jesus and fully accepting and unashamedly proclaiming the miraculous and the scandalous, not letting reason dictate what's possible, but submitting reason to what's revealed in God's Word. For truly, bronze snakes don't save people from fiery serpents, do they? But bronze serpents attached to the promise and Word of God they perform the miraculous. And that bronze snake points us to Jesus, who was lifted up for our salvation. Look to him, believe, and be saved from the curse. Next text, Exodus chapter 30, for the next sermon, which, by the way, is, I think it's entitled The Altar of Incense. Yet, The Altar of Incense, the text is Exodus chapter 30, verse 1 through 10. It says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of Achaia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it, under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in the front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it at regular incense, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. You shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. You shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Okay, so that's the text that forms the basis of this sermon entitled, The Altar of Incense. Here's Jeremy Rohde. Oh, how she wishes it was different. She prays to God most every night. And though she swears he doesn't listen, there's still a hope in her he might. 
She says, I pray, but my prayers, they fall on deaf ears. Am I supposed to take it on myself to get out of this place? These song lyrics give voice to a raw emotion, an emotion many of us have felt. Does God even hear my prayers? Does God even listen? If he does listen, does he even care? These emotions can take us rather quickly to a place of anger. Why won't you listen to me, God? Don't you love me? Don't I deserve better than this? I deserve better from you. Deserve better. Deserve. What do we really deserve? What claim can a sinful person make on a righteous God? We daily sin against Him. We live for ourselves and ignore Him and His Word. What we really deserve from God is nothing but problems, earthly punishments, eternal punishments. No, we don't deserve to be heard. We can only hope that God would treat us as we do not deserve, that God would be gracious to us and hear us. But even then, even if we hope He will be gracious, how can we ever be sure whether or not He is? How can we ever be sure if God does graciously hear us? The altar of incense was God's assurance to the Israelites, His promise that He would graciously hear their prayers. As the incense rose from the altar, so would God graciously receive their prayers as if they were sweet-smelling incense, wafting up to Him with a pleasing aroma. The altar of incense was the second great focal point of the tabernacle. Outside the tent of meeting in the courtyard, the altar of burnt offering was the focal point. But inside the tent, inside the holy place, the altar of incense was the focal point. The altar of incense stood right in front of the curtain of the holiest of holies. Architecturally, you might say the altar of incense was right under God's nose. It's as if all of Israel's prayers, all the people's prayers, were gathered to that altar and, and there ascended to God like sweet-smelling incense. The incense that they used was incense specific only to the tabernacle. The smell could be associated with nothing else. To smell that incense was to smell the presence of God. That incense was burnt on the altar of incense by the priests two times a day, morning and evening. The incense rose before God as the priests prayed, making intercession for all the people. In fact, this morning and evening service of prayer and incense is the origin of the service of Vespers that we're using tonight. Matins and Vespers are the church's version 
of this very same morning and evening prayer service. What we do is connected all the way back to the tabernacle. Every day, the people of Israel could go about their lives and business, their vocations, certain that God was graciously hearing their prayers because every day the priest was in the tabernacle doing two things for them. By splashing blood on the altar of burnt offering, he had made atonement for their sins. And by burning incense on the altar of incense, he made intercession for them and secured God's acceptance of their prayers. What wonderful comfort God gave his people that every day he would forgive them, that every day he would graciously hear their prayers, just as if their prayers were sweet-smelling incense rising up to his nostrils. Let my prayer rise before you as incense, the psalmist will pray the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. These very same words we take into our own mouth, we heard them said just a moment ago. They are as true for the Old Testament people of God as they are for us. We pray that God would also let our prayers rise to Him as incense. Why ask God to let our prayers rise as if they were incense. Well, let's be honest. Sometimes our prayers aren't much like incense at all. Sometimes our prayers are a bit lacking, to say the least. And sometimes our prayers just plain stink. In fact, most of us would probably express dissatisfaction with our prayer life. St. Paul says we don't know how to pray as we ought. St. James, the meaner apostle, says, you don't have because you don't ask. You ask, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Ouch. But ouch, only because the truth hurts. Often our prayers are little more than the latest laundry list we have for God so that we can get our needs met and move on, leaving our God and Father behind us in the dust. Truth be told, even the most eloquent, theologically profound prayer is still prayed with the wretched breath and unclean lips that belong to a sinner. We are an unclean people, soiled with the sewage of our sinful life and self-centered egos. Do we deserve to be heard by God? Certainly not. We can hope that he would be gracious and hear us. But how can we ever know if he does? The people of old had the altar of incense. 
But you, dear Christian, have something far greater. You have Christ. You have the very Son of God Himself. Christ is your altar of incense, your assurance, your promise from God that God will indeed graciously hear your prayers. For all your prayers are prayed in and through Christ. In those simple words that we heard Jesus give, our Father. All our prayers are tied into the one prayer of the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. All our prayers are prayed in and through Christ, and Christ is seated, as it were, right under God's nose. On account of Christ, your prayers daily rise before God as a sweet-smelling incense. Of this unimaginable, unbelievable, heavenly reality, the book of Revelation says, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. Humble prayers and eloquent prayers one-word prayers and lengthy prayers, written prayers and spontaneous prayers, heartfelt prayers, and even prayers where your lips are moving and your mind is somewhere else. The prayers of the saints rise with the smoke of the incense. All your prayers, every last prayer you pray, ascends with the incense smoke of Christ's own righteousness and is thereby made sweet-smelling and acceptable to our God. Holy smokes, that's good news. The stench of our sins never reaches God's nostrils. Our prayers are sweet-smelling to God not because we are such good prayers, but because of our altar of incense, Jesus Christ. The scriptures plainly tell us that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does this mean? It means that the cross of Jesus is the fulfillment of both altars of the tabernacle. The bloody sacrifices of the burnt offering, of the altar of burnt offering, and the smoke rising from the altar of incense, both direct us to the cross of Jesus, where he offers himself up to God on our behalf as a fragrant offering and, and, and sacrifice. We are also pointed by these two altars, even beyond the cross of Jesus, to heaven itself, where Christ now stands in his resurrected body, making daily intercession for us.
The scriptures say Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Every day, every day as you go about your life, your many vocations, whether you're in the classroom or the office, the freeway or the grocery store or your home, every day and wherever you are, you can be certain that God graciously hears your prayers because every day the Lord Jesus stands before the throne of God. He, the atonement for all your sins, He, the one who prays and intercedes on your behalf. Let the tabernacle's altar of incense lead you by your nose to Christ and to God's promise that he does indeed hear all your prayers. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, it is just, just absolutely never, it never gets old for me. It never gets old for me to hear the gospel, to be pointed to Christ, to hear rich biblical theology unpacked from a biblical text, and it, it, to hear the gospel from Exodus chapter 30. Oh, man. This is what Christian preaching sounds like from a man who knows how to rightly handle the biblical texts, doesn't let his reason get in the way, and prophetically proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing that all texts, even Exodus 30, still points us to Jesus. Oh, man. Never gets old. Never gets old. It just... Uh, I feel like I could go take on the day, <laughs> but the day is almost over. <laughs> So I think I'll take a, you know, it's Friday night. You know, I'll go enjoy what's left of the day. But I'm going to take it on just because of this. Anyway, so what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.